Well, I'm very glad that you've all come the last week of term uh, to listen to uh, uh, what is a very serious discussion, the answer uh, to German Europe, are there alternatives, is something that every Cypriot would like to know, and you can tweet them, preferably before the end of the business day, so that they, they know this. Uh, I'm Richard Sennett. Uh, I'm professor of sociology here. Uh, and uh, you know our colleagues and Ulrich um, uh, Beck, who has taught here for a number of years and is coming back to teach again next year, and Mary Caldor, who is professor of global governance. Is that, I, your title is so grand, I, I never know what it is. Um, look, we're going to talk... This is a really serious discussion. I mean, this crisis of the European Union is really a crisis. And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, uh, Ulrich is really going to take the lead on this because he's written a new book on this subject. And um, um, uh, both Mary and I, oddly enough, will have some things to contribute. And then I think we should... Uh, it's such a contentious issue that we, you know, we really should save a good amount of time for um, for discussion in in the room. Uh, do I understand it's going to go on until about three? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I'll make sure that we've got at least uh, 30, 40 minutes for us all to talk. But without further ado, let me turn... Um, Proceedings over to Ulrich and um, tell us what's on your mind. What is the answer to this question? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for your attention here. I first would like to tell you that uh, Dani Kuhn Bendit would really oh, love to be here, but uh, Lufthansa doesn't fly. It's a strike. Can you imagine? There are lots of uncertainties, and sorry, I forgot. Well, um, Europe is in quite a mess. Europe is actually a moving target. Uh, you cannot be certain if there is the Europe we know on the next day, even. So, what kind of time are we really? Living, what kind of time do we really experience if we cannot be sure about the structure of order and the structure of institutions we are used to live in? We are somehow lost in this euro crisis. That's, I think, more not knowing than knowing. And uh, all the paradigms uh, we are using, including specifically those of the economics, really are not very helpful in this situation. Uh, so I want to ask first, put the basic question on the table, what actually is the purpose of the European Union? Is there a European narrative? And then second, I will ask, what does German Europe mean? And how did it happen? And what is wrong about it? And maybe if I, if I had time, I'd pick up the question of alternatives and actors. Otherwise, we take this for the discussion. 
So first of all, what is the purpose of the EU? Why Europe? Why not the world? Why not just Great Britain, just Germany, just France, etc.? I see four answers, which are not exclusive. Actually, they are inclusive. And I, I just give you very shortly those ideas, even if those ideas have to be discussed on a long term and, and very deep discussion. The first one is related to the war-driven history of Europe. The European Union is about a miracle, about the miracle how enemies can become neighbors. It is, they don't have to become friends, but they have to become neighbors. And if you look at the history, war-driven history of, of Europe, this actually is a miracle. You can even uh, look back to the beginning of the 20th century and look at, uh, for example, uh, important um, uh, poets like uh, Thomas Mann or others who are so well known uh, up to, to date. They didn't even imagine a situation of, of Europe as we have it now. They still believed in, 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 uh, in enemy images, uh, in completely different framings, how to think about Europe, civilization and culture, democracy and not democracy. Those all were up uh, in, in the air at this time. So actually, I think there's a huge process going on, a learning process, and we have to be careful not to forget about it. Uh, and I think uh, Mary is going to raise the question if, if there could be even a kind of new war in, uh, in Europe, in, in the crisis of Europe. This is actually not something which is uh, only related to Europe. It could be a model uh, for <laughs> South Asian countries, China, um, South Korea, Japan, it could be a model for Palestinians and, and Israel. I'm not saying that we have the solution, but at least this is an historical uh, place where we successfully overcome, overcame the logic of war and now have a logic of, let's say, market, a logic of risk, uh, which is quite different. The second narrative is related to globalization. And it's about not to get lost. Not to get lost in a um, globalized world, in, in a world in which world politics is getting away from, from Europe. Europe is being provincialized. And if you think about uh, what a post-European Britain would be, or a post-European Germany would be, it, was, it would be a lost Britain and a lost Germany because actually the European model and the background of European integration makes those nation states important. The third narrative is, I think, uh, hasn't been really discussed so I think those two narratives are at least part of the discussion on Europe. The third narrative is related to actually the European nations. 
we are discussing extensively how Europe has to change, if there's going to be more Europe or less Europe or German Europe or what, whatsoever, or French Europe. But the future of the European Union is not only about the future of the European Union, but about the, the future of the European Union is mainly about how the nations redefine their national interests how the European nations redefine their national interest. I think this is a very important issues, issue. Uh, actually, I would like to capture this vision or this question or this problem by making a, a distinction between, let's say, a national nation and a cosmopolitan nation. A national nation and a cosmopolitan nation or a national nation and a European nation. The paradox is that nationalism has become the enemy of the European nations and its national interest. Let's say, for example, that the Eurosceptics in Britain got their way. The, U the UK quit the EU altogether. Would the British then have a clear clearer sense of identity? Would they have more sovereignty to run their own affairs? No, they would not. The Scots and the Welsh would almost certainly continue to look to the EU anyway, perhaps leading to the breakup of the UK. And Britain or England would lose rather than gain sovereignty. If sovereignty means real power, to influence their own affairs and the affairs of the wider world. The European Union is better placed to advance national interests than nations could possibly do acting alone. I think this is a very important insight and it's, it's related to actually all subjects, all big subjects, commerce, climate change, global risks of all kinds, immigration, etc., etc. Again, the paradox is in order to be a good Frenchman, a good British, a good German, you have to think and act European. It's not an either-or between nation and Europe. It's a both-and. But we have to think this both-and in a very specific way, and I think this is an important issue. What does, um, what does actually a cosmopolitan nation include? I think this is an, an open question. We just, I, you don't find any literature on this, actually. It's part of, of the project I'm, I'm making. Uh, but uh, the vision of a cosmopolitan nation includes, for example, the art of cooperation between states, but on, not only between states, but between states and civil movements as well, between states and different fractions of, of mobile capital. It's not a homogeneous um, uh, actor as well. So it, it, it opens up all kind of new, um, uh, well, there are lots of, of blockings and, and, and obstacles, but at the same time, there are maybe new options uh, for acting as well. 
The fourth narrative is uh, about global risk. Um, global risks are the problem. Europe could become the answer. Um, the idea of what I call first modernity or nation-state capitalism, the model of modernity which Europe has created has been proven now as a, to make the point very clear, as a suicidal model. You know, we, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in, in the area of, of financial uh, markets. It doesn't work in the area of climate change. So actually we, should, we have to do what, what uh, a normal, let's say, somebody who, who is producing cars and distributing the cars all over the world and finds out the cars don't have a, a brake. So the drivers kill themselves. Uh, what does the company? It takes the car back. And so I think we have to take... We have to take modernity back. We have to take modernity back and reinvent it. Have to, and, and the place for this is Europe. The place for this is Europe because Europe was a starting point and Europe is actually now the place where we are fighting how to, and, and this should discuss how to prevent, uh, how, how to reinvent uh, uh, modernity in a way that it is capable to solve uh, the global risks it is producing. It's not going to happen alone, but this could be one of the places where this could happen. So let me summarize those um, uh, four um, narratives, which actually could be combined. They are not exclusive. They have to be uh, included, and of course, you have to go much more into details about those narratives. First, um, uh, the European narrative is about the miracle how enemies become neighbors, and the closer the, en the closer the neighbors become, the more quarrel there's. So actually, actually, misunderstanding and and quarreling is an indicator for progress for progress, because now they are at least quarreling. And this is an important issue. We, are not, we don't have a consensus, but now we have to go to business and take all the different the differences uh, seriously. Second, uh, Europe, is, Europe is about how not to get lost in, in world politics. Uh, and I think this is a very important issue, too, because those who think they can do it alone, this is the main uh, ideology of our time, we can do it alone. Luxembourg can even do it alone. Everybody can do it alone. Maybe the individual can do it alone. This is actually the main ideology uh, of our time, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I hope we don't have to find out that it doesn't work. Because, and we have to ask the question, what do you think of, uh, for example, of uh, uh, Britain... Uh, of a United Kingdom, kingdom a post-European Britain. What would it stand for? What would actually, what would it look like? And if you ask, for example, for, for somebody who is a really European actor in Britain, maybe you have a problem finding those actors in the parties. Uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about it. But there is an important, a powerful actor in Britain who is pro-European. And those are the ones in 
in the business, the business people. The business people know what they lose if actually um, uh, Britain would um, um, uh, leave the European Union. So those narratives are a background. And now uh, uh, I come to my second uh, question. And I have to say that the emergence of a German Europe contradicts exactly those narratives. It doesn't fit to those narratives. Um, I would like to ask the question, can we understand the global financial risk which is now threatening the existence of the Euro and the European Union in the frame of the theory of um, risk society? And I would say yes, and this is actually part of my book to demonstrate it. I just want to give you the main idea. Risk society is not a catastrophic society, catastrophic society. Risk society is about the anticipation of catastrophe and of a kind of catastrophe which is not supposed to happen. It is an anticipation of a catastrophe which is not supposed to happen because when it happens, it is such a big catastrophe that we don't know the consequences. And this anticipation of a catastrophe, what risk society is about, is a huge mobilizing force. It has a huge mobilizing force. Uh, highly ambivalent mobilizing force, not only in one direction, but also in, in the other direction, but it has a huge mobilizing force. And um, you can see this um, Transform, transformative power already in, in Europe. I think we are too often, too fast asking what the future of Europe or the European model should look like. We have first to ask what the reality of Europe is about and, and what is happening in Europe right now. And uh, my uh, diagnosis is that uh, we are experiencing a fundamental change um, in the power landscape of Europe already. Besides the institution, the institutional structure is relatively constant, but the, uh, behind those uh, institutions, the uh, landscape of power is changing fundamentally. And because of the anticipation of catastrophe, and I want to show this very shortly uh, uh, in, in relation to three splits. The first, uh, split is between the Euro countries and the EU countries. Um, because of the crisis, actually, all the imagination, all the transformative power is going to the Euro countries, if there's something is happening. And the EU countries, like Britain or Poland or other countries, are not in the center of, of, of the affairs anymore, even to be even uh, to, to make this point clear, um, the British Prime Minister is still talking about the British veto power, but this veto power is disappearing. It's a tragic, comic uh, event what he is doing. It, it, he, is, he is threatening with something which nobody is really uh, taking seriously anymore. And uh, be, why? Because. Uh, Take a very simple example. If they're meeting in Brussels, all the, 
the prime ministers and, and uh, all the government people. Then, um, an embarrassing situ- some, after some hours, an embarrassing situation comes up. The Euro countries, the Euro country governments, stick together. And the EU country leaders have to leave the room. Yes. They have to leave the room. It's quite embarrassing how they do it, you know. They're not used to leave the room when the important questions are being asked. But this is a situation of the first fundamental split we have already in Europe. The second one is, if you think in this line, the second one is there is a split of power inside of the Euro countries because of uh, uh, between uh, the debtor countries and the lender countries. I think this um, distinction, this um, very important distinction between uh, debtor and lender countries is one of the fundamental um, uh, concepts to understand the the dynamics of inequality of our time. And I have to confess that the social sciences are not very good in it. They didn't voice this. They are thinking thinking about class and so on, but they don't have this uh, idea of debtor and lender countries so far. So there's this split, and then the second, uh, third, no, no, then the third consequence is, given the financial crisis, all debtor countries depend on German willingness to extend credit for their survival. Actually, and I would say, um, uh, the German power situation now is not an intended power. It's not a master plan. It doesn't have a military background. This is completely wrong. This is um, the Fourth Reich is a, is a completely wrong uh, metaphor. But Germany has become, let's say, the accidental empire. It's an accidental empire. It's just an empire by accident. And uh, in order to understand it, it's not well. They were driven in this position because of uh, the economic power, but then somehow Merkel uh, did develop her own strategy to cope with this situation. And I'm I'm saying I'm I'm saying uh, this is um, uh, a Merkel-Valley uh, model. Mer- it's a combination of Machiavelli and Merkel. Machiavelli. Machiavelli. Machiavelli model. It's a new style of power in, 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 in Europe. Um, I, well, it's part of the book, too. Um, um, it's a Machiavelli model. And, well, you could say a lot about it, but there are two uh, interesting points which are specific to the German situation and to uh, Merkel as a person. The, the first one is um, um, Merkel, well, to, to, to make this point clear, it is not um, uh, the economic power in itself which creates a German Europe. Not the economic power in itself. It could be used quite differently. But uh, Merkel uh, links, and this is actually a Machiavellian point, German willingness to extend credit with the willingness of the debtor countries to satisfy the requirements of the German stability politics. Her vision of stability politics is a condition for uh, being willing to extend the uh, the, the credit to the debtor countries. And this is an interesting strategy. Uh, I think 
uh, politics is about power. So I'm not criticizing, not only criticizing it, it's just an observer perspective. Um, This is a very interesting uh, strategy because it it enables her to to be both things at once, an orthodox champion of the nation state and an architect of Europe. And she can play up either of those two conflicting roles depending on situation in, in, um, inside of Germany and in European, on the European um, uh, politics platform. Second, what kind of virtue is behind this? And this is a paradox too, behind this uh, virtue in, in, in the sense of Machiavelli, where he means what kind of political energy, what kind of political... Uh, drive is behind this and the Machiavelli power is the desire to do nothing (laughs) just the opposite (laughs) it is her wavering her art of wavering really she waits till uh, some thing shows up and waiting makes the others in Europe recognize how much they depend on the human, uh, on on the German um, decision. So um, the German position of power in crisis-ridden Europe is precisely this deliberate hesitation, this mixture of indifference, refusal of Europe, and commitment to Europe, wavering as a disciplinary tactics. This is the Machiavellian model and method. In this way, she is enabled to solve a huge conflict, which everybody has, in, every politician has in, in, in Europe. Uh, the conflict between being a nationalist to be, to be elected in the next time uh, and saying, well, I'm, I'm taking care of the German interest, and at the same time being a European, let's say a European of the last minute, you know, the last minute European, when suddenly see in the last, maybe it's, in Cyprus it's going to be too late now, but actually in the last minute she, uh, she tries to bring up uh, uh, a German, uh, uh, a European perspective. So as I said, uh, the German power is not founded as in earlier times on military force. Uh, you know the Germans want to be a green Switzerland, Green is, is being green is our national identity, even if we drive like hell on the streets, you know, the car is driving like hell on the street, but greening, the greening is actually our main path. And we are not, you know, military issues um, are not really taken serious anymore because Germany is, um, because of uh, the miracle which happens, is now surrounded by friends. There's no, no, no security issue perceived in Germany. Therefore, we, we are not actually interested in military options. You can see this in the NATO. You can see this uh, all the discussions. You, the Germans don't want to do this. They actually want to be a green, bigger Switzerland. Um, and therefore, it's wrong to talk about the False Reich. But uh, it is very important um, to, uh, to understand um, uh, what is, what is behind this idea of a German Europe? Uh, of course, uh, you cannot talk in Germany about a German Europe. 
this book is white is very difficult to discuss this book in, in Germany because the Germans believe actually even the commentators believe the Germans are executing economic rationality it's it's not about the German value uh, system or a German perspective we are just doing the best for the others we are taking responsibility for the others because uh, they don't really know how to handle um, the economy <laughs> we are the teachers um, and uh, I think this is this is quite interesting because you know to some extent there's a there's a switch in the self-perception of of Germany you know we have we have such a bad history and we often the younger generation especially wants to get well we know about this history Holocaust is nothing which uh, we wouldn't care about but at the same time it's nice to get over it you know it's get nice to get over it and nice to teach the others how to handle uh, the economy <laughs> and there's a background uh, again in, in this uh, uh, economy the, econ the economy issue the Austrian politics um, in, in the perspective of, of Merkel uh, does have to do something with Luther, Luther, Martin Luther. It's a Protestantic ethics. It is suffering as the basis for a better life. And uh, therefore it's not only about economy. It's not only about economy. It's a moral issue. And I think this is one of it's it's again the sociologists will know Max Weber would love this you know Max Weber would love this there would would be a love affair with with Merkel I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> because um, well it's a Protestantic ethic and the spirit of capitalism which we are experiencing you know, south north division uh, and things like that well um, this is actually uh, the perspective of, of German Europe. I think it is, um, uh, it, it is in, in two, at least two meanings. Um, it, it is um, counterproductive. First of all, it is, um, well, it is neglecting the basic values of Europe. The basic value of Europe is equality. And Unilateral, uh, multilateralism, multilateralism, and it's putting this uh, upside down. And you could say um, uh, Germany is in a bad position because um, uh, it's a it's a dilemma of German power today because Germany is damned if it does not take the lead, and it's damned if it does take the lead. But I think this isn't actually the problem. The problem is, even if, if Germany would take the lead, it doesn't have to be a German Europe. And actually, this was what, what um, uh, all the others thought about. Um, it was Thomas Mann who, uh, in the 50s, said uh, Germany should never become, uh, should never head for, for a German Europe, but for a European Germany. And this was actually the basis for German politics uh, since lately, since lately, after the reunification and so on. And now a generation is coming up asking the question, do we really need Europe? Does Germany really need Europe? Does it need to pay for Europe? And how much solidarity do we need in Europe? 
And second, um, uh, it's not only contradicting European values, but it's counterproductive, counterproductive in itself because, well, the politics is failing. The politics is failing. We, got, we have 50% um, unemployment of, of the best educated youth in, in southern countries. It's, it's just a fact. It's a scandal, actually, not only in moral terms, but in sociological terms. You know, there's a lot of, of unrest going on, but they still think this is the only way uh, to uh, handle the... There's no alternative. This is the only way to, to answer the European crisis. And I think exactly uh, this is wrong. There's a, third, there's a third part of my talk, but we could have it later on. What is the actor? Who is the actor who could do something? But, but I think we should... Okay, I'll ask you that question. <laughs> and I have an answer to it. <laughs> I hope he's going to find an answer, because I'm going to be very pessimistic, but I do recommend you to read... We, we should have had a copy of the book up here, but it's outside, and it's really, I think it's really important, particularly these days, to give us a way to think about... Who's the publisher? Polity. Polity, Okay. So I was going to start with uh, Ulrich's point uh, that Europe is founded not on the logic of war, yeah. but on the logic of risk. And um, I think you know, that really expresses why Europe is not the same as a nation state, because nation states were founded on the logic of war. Uh, Europeans built their state apparatuses, they extended their social contract with people, promising to protect them from external enemies in exchange for paying taxes and fighting in wars. Um, Charles Tilly says war made the state and the state made war, and this is why states always celebrate past battles, why on uh, big holidays you always see soldiers. Um, and Europe was just the opposite. It was founded in reaction to war. Uh, actually, what I call old wars, the wars of the 19th and 20th centuries, which were fought between European states and by soldiers in uniform. And so the method that was chosen to bring about this miracle was economic cooperation. Yeah. And Ulrich also makes a, a wonderful point in his book you know, when economists talk about the monetary union, they say what a mistake it was to have a monetary union without a political union. And Ulrich says it was just the opposite. That was the strategy. We had to create an economic interest in political union. You couldn't get a monetary union without political union, so we start with a monetary union, and it would inevitably lead to a political union. And... What I want to say is I think that that was the, the rationality. And now we face the logic of risk once again for Europe, that this is the only way to escape the financial crisis, this is the only way to escape economic collapse. But the problem that, that happened with the establishment of the monetary union without a political union and the neoliberal um, ideology with which it was associated was that it actually undermined the politics 
of the European Union. It led to inequality, it led to atomization, it led to pervasive mistrust. And so the problem we face now is we now really need a political union, but we don't have the politics to create it. In the early years, this idea that economic cooperation would lead to political cooperation worked quite well, but at that time, it was a sort of Keynesian economic cooperation. It was cooperation around infrastructure, coal and steel. It was cooperation around agriculture. And it did lead to small steps towards political cooperation. But after the end of the Cold War, cooperation took a different form. It took the form of the single market and the euro. And I think what happened in 1989 was that on the one hand, it was the high point of peace and human rights groups, the post-1968 movements, and the high point of Europeanism. This was a moment that we were going to overcome the Cold War division of Europe and once again prove the peace project. But the very critique of repressiveness, militarism, authoritarianism of the states that those movements brought about opened the space for the right to argue we need less state and more market. And I think the Maastricht Treaty was, in a sense, a curious alliance between the Europeanism uh, of the left, championed by Jacques Delors, and the radical right championed by Mrs. Thatcher. Mrs. Thatcher would never have agreed to Maastricht had it not been the extension of the single market. So I think that that's what we've seen over the last two decades, and I think the current crisis is fundamentally political crisis. And again, that's a point that Ulrich makes right at the beginning of his book. It's about the loss of trust in mainstream political elites, the way that formal representative democracy no longer involves substantive participation, what you were saying about being able to influence the decisions in which we live, substantive sovereignty, substantive individual democracy. Um, And it has to do with a lot of things. I mean, it's partly to do with globalization. It's partly because the decisions that affect our lives are no longer taken at national levels. They're taken in Brussels or the headquarters of multinational corporations. It's partly the sclerosis of the last three decades at national level. Um, And it's partly the ways in which political elites have become linked in to the financial and business and media worlds. Um, So who is there to cooperate if we no longer trust the political elites? I just want to say something before I come back to this problem about what is the model of European cooperation that I would envisage, which is, I think, very close to what Ulrich is saying. If we say that the European Union is not a new nation state, what is it? Well, I sometimes say it's a new model of global governance. It's about, I think, a new kind of political institution that protects democracy at a local level from the storms of globalization. That's kind of what we need. (laughs) Actually, at the moment, the European Union is doing just the opposite. (laughs) 
it's magnifying the storms of globalization, but an institution which protected us from the storms of globalization would, for example, tax global bads. It would have a tax on financial speculation, on the Tobin tax. It would tax carbon. And it would spend money on global goods, redistribution, development, peacekeeping, uh, investment in resource saving, a Marshall Plan for youth. Um, and um, it would involve a massive increase in the European budget, just the opposite of what's happening. I mean, economists say for a monetary union, you need a minimum of 7% of GDP to redistribute. Actually, this budget is less than 1%, and we're trying to cut it. The interesting thing is exactly what Ulrich has just said. Uh, Merkiavelli says she will do everything that it takes to save Europe. But what she thinks will save Europe is exactly the opposite of what can save Europe. She thinks the only way to save Europe is budgetary discipline, austerity, neoliberalism, convergence criteria, whereas it's exactly the opposite. So what really worries me is one can set up this nice model, we can see the rationality of why we need to cooperate, but where, as I come back to, is the politics to make this happen? And what we're seeing are these new divisions that Ulrich described, particularly the division between the debtors and the creditors. What we're seeing is deepening polarization, we're seeing stagnation, we're seeing lack of political legitimacy at all levels. And, you know, I think Greece, far from being an exception, could actually be the model of what's ahead of us. Lack of state capacity because of huge spending cuts, lack of legitimacy, high unemployment, high criminality because people don't have any alternative, extremist xenophobia. That kind of combination is what I call a new war, and I sort of feel the European Union in creating itself in reaction to old war never really took into account what a new war might be. So I think I may sound a little bit more pessimistic, maybe because I'm in Britain rather than in Germany. <laughs> but I'm therefore now at this point going to ask Ulrich, where's the politics to come from for an alternative Europe? Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed, um, Mary. Um, I think we... Well, actually, since I wrote Risk Society, I, I've always been um, uh, criticized for being a pessimist. You know, I, actually, I'm, my, my um, uh, let's say, my product of pessimism is, uh, is fundamentally in the, in the uh, uh, intellectual debate. Uh, so I can switch a little bit the perspective. And, uh, well, it's not, it's not very difficult to be a pessimist. Actually, it's quite easy. You just have to listen to the news and, and, um, uh, and you got all the arguments. So I think intellectually it's more challenging to, to think about um, uh, where are perspectives. And um, as a German, I have to say, um, from the background of German history, 
We are living in a, in a Germany and, and a Europe which is unimaginable and an unimaginable good situation. You know, think 60 or 70 years ago, think, take whatever history uh, period, you know, it's, it's quite an, an amazing situation we are in in Europe. We don't have wars, we don't have those old things, we don't have the Holocaust, and so on and so on. So I think there are reasons for looking in a new way from history to, to the European crisis right now. And since I'm, not, I'm, I'm using my theory in order to try to answer this question, as I say, um, there's a huge mobilizing force in the anticipation of catastrophe. The anticipation of catastrophe has a huge, as a dramatic uh, transformation, uh, in- inclusive tra- transformation, transformational power. You could even say the condition we, we, we are we are we are experiencing a revolution without a subject. The you know the the conditions are getting revolutionary. So we are we don't need to be. Maybe we should be revolutionary at the same time. But actually, the conditions are so rapidly changing. And it's such a, a chaotic change at the same time that uh, I think we have to open up uh, this position. We have to open up uh, this perspective. And um, in order to be a little bit more concrete, I think um, um, we got two ways of looking at the European situation right now. Uh, the one way I'm using, again, um, German philosophers or German theorists. The, the, the first way is related to Hegel, and uh, he, what, what he wrote is, is about the irony of rationality. The irony of rationality. In, in German it is List der Vernunft. I have a hard time to, to translate it. Uh, maybe the irony of rationality. I thought the whole morning about how to translate this term. Um, um, it is about um, what I would call what I would call the uh, cosmopolitan imperative: um, cooperate or die, cooperate or fail. You know, if you look at the last two years in European politics, on the one hand, you can see the failures and and uh, the increasing um, crisis, but on the other hand, you see how if the politicians or some of the politicians look in the eye of, of the threatening catastrophe, so to say, they are starting something new. Suddenly, for example, uh, there's a discussion about um, uh, European uh, finance minister. It's, it's a discussion about the fiscal pact. It's a discussion about uh, the banking union. It's a discussion even in the neoliberal conservative government of Merkel about the Robin Hood tax. The Robin Hood tax. They are saying we need the Robin Hood tax. So on the one hand they are producing German Europe, on the other hand they are really starting to think how to regulate um, financial, uh, global financial markets and they are not accepting the argument anymore that this is a global affair, and if, every, if not everyone does it at the same time, we're not going to do it. They are even going to do it if Britain doesn't want to do it. It's going to happen. 
to some extent. And then we find out what, what's happening next. So actually, amazingly, um, the anticipation of the catastrophe creates a new thinking about a vision for Europe. And I think this uh, thinking is, is, well, at least you've, you, you got the thinking in Europe. I think you got it in other countries as, as well. There's a new conflict between, on the one hand, um, let's, let's call them architects of Europe. Often they are technocratic architects of Europe. They think about, in relation to the fiscal crisis, they think about new kind of institutions giving more power to the European Union. On the other hand, there are the orthodox, there's the orthodoxy of nation-state politics. And this division uh, goes right through parties, goes right through institutions. It's, it's not one party against another party division. It is right inside of, of, of the institutions and, and the parties. Let me give you, I think, uh, one, one important example, example is um, Draghi. Draghi, the, the um, uh, director of the European um, Central Bank. And actually, you know, he is not, uh, he, he is not, he is not related to, uh, he doesn't have to um, legitimate uh, his decision uh, to a public, to a, who is not elected, he's not, there's no democratic election. So he is able to change fiscal rules uh, in order to save the euro. And he is doing uh, amazing things, actually, even if he's coming from, from a background where nobody expected. The second person I, you could talk about is Schäuble, the, the finance minister. I think he was the one, the driving force in, in the German. You, he is ambivalent, too. You, know, he's, uh, you, you can find this ambivalence in relation to Cyprus. But he was, last, to the last year, he was the, he was the teacher to, to Merkel to teach her what Europe is actually about. So at least there's some European engagement. So I think um, under the conditions of, of the anticipation of catastrophe, politics is opening up again. Okay. And to some extent, somehow involuntarily, it is, as I say, the irony of, of reason in Hegel's sense. At the same time, as you point out, there's a renaissance of, of uh, uh, Karl Schmidt. Karl Schmidt... Um, of course, um, this politics of, of uh, potential catastrophe is, in the sense of, of, uh, of Karl Schmidt, uh, uh, an existential way to redefine politics in national terms. And, of course, this is a quite powerful uh, movement at the same time, too. But it's... It's not clear-cut. It's, it's maybe the same persons are once a little bit uh, Hegel, influenced by Hegel, and on the other side influenced uh, by Karl Schmitt. And I just want to make a second point to this. I think this is happening in the institutions. So you never know where suddenly persons or actors are opening up to the European issue. The second one is, could there be something like a European spring? Could there be hmm. something like a European spring? And I think, um, actually, there could be. And um, so far, you know, the middle class in, in, in uh, European society is being threatened. It's not all, it is, of course, the, the poor people are threatened. Uh, the excluded are even more threatened, but the middle classes are threatened. They are really downgraded. 
So if you look who is on, on the streets nowadays, it's, it's the middle classes, are the students, are those who are really, um, uh, really are losing in, in this uh, power game. So far, this protest movements, um, I, I'm amazed why this is the case, um, still captured by methodological nationalism. They still, uh, the pro protest movements are organized on the national level. They are uh, addressing uh, their national uh, government. Uh, the amazing thing in the Arab Spring was that it actually was uh, transnational. So there isn't. So there's an, there are national uh, counter movements, but not uh, European counter movements so far. European movements which take Europe as a value against the national politics. And if there would be, just to think for a moment, uh, to, to open up the Im imagination, if there would be, a, let's say, a coalition or something uh, between the architects and the institutions and uh, European spring movement, this could really uh, produce some change. Well, before we open this up, I can't uh, repress the, uh, a comment, <laughs> um, which bears on the question of who is the act, who should be the actor now. And as some of you may know, I've uh, been arguing for some time that the architecture of representation in the European Union is really faulty. Uh, because it's based on the nation state. And my argument is a very simple one. If you imagine that Europe were a country, how would you represent it internally? You'd represent it probably by population, so that people would, would vote not on the basis of belonging to a nation, but there, there would be districts across Europe. Uh, um, Based on there would be based on population. Another way to do this would be cultural or cultural economic. You know that the biggest trading partner of London is Frankfurt. London has much more to do with Frankfurt economically than it has to do with the rest of Britain. Uh, Barcelona has more to do with Genoa than it does with the rest of Spain. So my own view, which has been characterized by Christine Lagarde as perverse, which made me very happy, is that we should scrap uh, the architecture of representation in the European Union and make its agents look more like the actual existing reality on the ground, either by population, um, uh, by or, or by ethnic affinity, that would be another way to do it. Um, um, but I, would, I wouldn't be as happy. As, I mean, if we did this by ethnic affinity, England probably would wind up not belonging to the European Union, and Wales and Scotland would. Yeah. And they'd probably join the Euro. Yeah. Now, I think that's a good outcome. I certainly think in, in Spain that Catalonia and the Basque Country uh, are uh, culturally nations. And if we're going to go the 
national root. Uh, they should be represented as such. But my own preference for this is that the actors, that we treat Europe like a nation and uh, create representation in it based on population rather than on nationality. And the other thing I would just mention to you is that the Merkel strategy that is of ultimate passivity is also a strategy of Obama, and it's a hegemonic kind of passivity. If you do nothing until the last moment, what you do is that the action that you actually perform tends to be you reaffirm the status quo. Do you know what I mean? That a leader who is passive, when they are stirred to act, will reaffirm the status quo, and that's one of legitimacy. I don't think that's particularly German, because it's what Obama has done for the last four years and will probably do for, for the next. So I think that's a kind of power structure that, that obtains. Anyhow, can we now have, how can we do this? Do you have a microphone? Okay, so would you go to that gentleman, Shall please? Shall we take two or three? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, we take two or three. Could you ask a question? Even if you're making a statement, cast it. Be, be like the British, good British parliamentarian. Cast it in the form of, don't you think that? <laughs> so that it represents something like a question. Um, thanks very much to both of you. Really fascinating points you both made. Um, I, I thought it's really interesting, um, Orish, that you came back to this very fundamental question about what is the purpose of Europe? Because it strikes me that often uh, we pro-Europeans tend to think that further integration is the purpose of Europe, so it becomes a kind of circular argument. Um, And I thought your four answers to that question were really interesting. But I wondered if there's a fifth that you missed. Um, And if you don't mind me saying so, I wonder if that's because you're looking at this from a very German perspective. Um, It strikes me that one of the other purposes of Europe... And perhaps at the beginning, some would argue, the most important purpose of Europe was to constrain German power. Um, and, um, and, and by the way, that was also part of the purpose of the single currency after the reunification of Germany in order to constrain the power of this bigger reunited Germany. Um, that was certainly Mitterrand's um, thinking. Um, that then, in a sense makes it even more problematic because it starts to look as if Europe and the single currency have done the opposite of what they were supposed to do, which is instead of constraining German power, actually amplifying German power. Um, Very good. Let's take another... Let's take two or three. I do have a a question at at the end of that, which is is just that that if if that's the case, then um, uh, I, I wonder whether the that the current situation looks actually a lot like the old German question, except, as you said, without the military component. And then isn't the answer to your question, what are the alternatives and who is the actor? I mean, I'm very worried that it's starting to look like the answer to that is a coalition against Germany, which I think is quite scary. Okay. Let's take a a clutch of of, uh, comments. Questions. Yes, uh, John Palmer. I don't think I've been at a meeting for a long time where I have agreed with absolutely everything that the speaker has said, and anybody <laughs> who knows me will know that that's 
That's true. Uh, I found everything that uh, Ulrich said was, was pretty spot on. I might just add, and I'm interested to know your opinion, in the view that at the end of the day, if the forces of disintegration uh, gather the kind of momentum that is at risk at the moment, the biggest loser will be Germany. The biggest loser by far. Not only is its Wirtschaftswunder heavily based upon the continued existence and relative progressive integration of the wider Europe, uh, uh, but, but its politics and its own bearing as well. And it's surprising to me, and I, I don't know if you could comment on this, uh, the extent to which even the opposition parties in uh, Germany, uh, SPD, uh, the Greens, are very reluctant to make this point in quite this way, though I, I think some of them know it. My question, therefore, is this. Uh, Mary made the point about a new kind of popular politics that is, starts from a European premise. We have to start from where we are. Do you see any signs, uh, and particularly in Germany, uh, that there will be an alternative narrative developed in the weeks between now and September when the election takes place? Will there be a debate, a German-German debate, about qu quite where uh, 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 Merkelism and, and, and its uh, allies are leading us, uh, and uh, therefore whether, ahead of the European election, for the first time there can be a genuine political conflict, a democratic political conflict over the direction that Europe should okay. take. Let's take one more uh, question uh, in this round, and then we'll come back to other people. Go ahead. Uh, hello, it's Robert Cooper. Um, I, I was, um, I, I like uh, uh, Jonathan Palmer, agreed with uh, everything you said um, until you started being optimistic. <laughs> um, and uh, it was the bit about the European Spring that scared me. And I wondered if you could tell us which of the European countries is going to be Syria in this event. Yeah. Okay, so there are three... Ulrich has been posed broadly three questions. One isn't your, your question about isn't this a constraint... Uh, isn't the European Union a constraint of Germany? And uh, that's its origin. And uh, Aren't we dealing with a perhaps outmoded architecture of restraining Germany? The second question is based on the notion that if uh, disintegration occurs, that Germany will be the biggest loser. And your question is, what kind of debate might happen in Germany about this? And the third question is, um, what would the European Spring be like? And who would be, um, I mean, you can spin this out. Who is Syria? Who's Egypt? Are we Brits? Are we Egypt? <laughs> so those are your three questions. Well, very good questions. <clears throat> Um, I think we have to be careful not to essentialize um, uh, positions and uh, counter positions. Uh, we are talking about the Germans, we are talking about the British, we are talking about the, the, the. 
Um, uh, to pick up the first question, I think there is, op- even if I said um, uh, that there is not much opposition to Merkel's politics so far uh, in Germany, uh, there is a split in the public um, um, response and the, in the public discussion. And the critique I'm um, formulating is part of the critique of, of people in Germany as well. So it's, it's not uh, only uh, Germans against other countries. It's a um, split in Germany itself. And I think this split is going to be uh, getting more important uh, in the election, actually. In the, I'm not sure about the uh, debate of the election. You know, um, uh, Steinmeier, the, um, uh, Steinbrück, uh, the candidate of the Social Democratic uh, Party, uh, has a very strong uh, program for um, regulating uh, financial markets. A very strong program. For the first time he is talking about, well, not for the first time, but he is taking it seriously, that the tax system has to be um, transnationalized in order to uh, get the state uh, uh, the necessary uh, money. And maybe even there's going to be a discussion if the Tobin tax uh, should be a European tax, because only if Europe has its own tax, its own money, it could make effective politics in in relation to, to the crisis. So, but whenever he uh, uh, raises those issues, Merkel is stealing them. Merkel is saying the same thing. Merkel is trying in a soft way. So um, actually, so I expected there, would, there was supposed to be um, a real public debate on, on the future of Europe and the role of Germany in Europe. But it really doesn't happen so far, because always then some kind of agreement comes up. And I think most of the people uh, in, in the political elites anticipate that there is going to be a grand co- uh, coalition again between social democrats and, and, and uh, uh, Christian democrats as a result of, of the election. Um, the last question who is uh, what what is uh, where the, does uh, the european spring come from who is the actor who is egypt who is uh, tunisia who is uh, who is who is who in, in this situation uh, well it is it is happening already you know we have um, we have huge protest movements in spain we have huge protest movements in in Greece, we have protest movements in, in Italy to some extent. Even in Germany. Uh, in Germany to some extent too, yeah. not, in the same, not in the same sense, but we do have those protest movements. And I think uh, there has even been um, uh, a program uh, f- uh, by the European unions, the European unions to uh, organize a European uh, uh, strike on on those issues. It, it hasn't been so effective so far, but uh, it is it is organized, being organized. And maybe you didn't hear about this in in, in Britain, uh, but we are discussing this very ner- very nervously in in Germany. Mm. Uh, there's a huge opposition coming up, you know, and an opposition which is um, raising 
questions from, from the middle classes, from a generation which is a lost generation, which is the best educated generation ever in Europe, and actually a European generation now, which doesn't have a, a future position on the labor market. So this is actually a potential revolutionary situ situation uh, in the classical sense. And uh, it's a question why and, and, and how this could be organized. Mary. Well, I just wanted to add something on that because we, our unit just did a study of the European Spring, oh, as yes. it were, uh, which we named Subterranean Politics. And if you Google Subterranean Politics, you'll find it. But we had teams across Europe who interviewed people in the squares. Uh, and I think one of our findings was there was a lot of activity in Germany, demonstrations against the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, demonstrations about infrastructure. But the question that we were asked to answer is, you know, where is the new constituency for Europe? And what we found was that there were lots of initiatives at an elite level, people like us, who cross European borders. But at the level of the squares, at the level of the demonstrations, we could find no interest in Europe. Europe never came up when we asked them questions, and when we pushed them, we got contradictory answers. I mean, when we pushed them, quite often people would say, well, we think Europe's just another neoliberal bureaucracy. It's part of the Troika, along with the World Bank and the IMF. Um, Is that but, the European Union or Europe? European, European Union. Union. But, and that's where I come to Europe, many, many young people said, but of course we're European. We tra travel around, we use the euro. They just took Europe for granted. Yeah. And so what worries me is that the, all this activity is not being translated into a political program, and it's so easily captured by... Beppe's five-star movement or Jobbik in Hungary or the True Finns. And that is, you know, I think in a way there's a race against time between yeah. these different tendencies. Yeah. Let's take a clutch of three more questions. Yes, right here. Thank you, Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Richard Bronk. Uh, my question is, do you think Part of the problem is that the European Union as an organization is better at arranging compromises and trade-offs between divergent interests than between distinct ideas and theoretical frames. And it seems to me, for example, on fiscal policy, that increasingly the two groups in the EU are locked into, some, into sets of ideas with non-negotiable priors and assumptions, and there's not really a very good mechanism within Europe for actually hammering out a compromised set of ideas, and I just wonder whether you agreed with that. Okay, Mr. No. Three brief questions. To, to, to Richard, representation by population. So in Philadelphia, they made a mistake when they said each state should only have two senators. Right. Yeah. Um, Ulrich, do we not need more feinschaft in Europe? We need an enemy. The European <laughs> Union after the war, the 50s and 60s, was constructed against... Soviet totalitarianism and actually to abolish the wide discrepancies between the status and income of people that existed before the war. And on the whole, grosso modo, grosso modo, that's been achieved. There's no more working class in Europe now. 
all their children are at university. Um, and Mary, when you talk about neoliberal Europe, is part of the problem that actually the share that the state takes of GDP has risen very, very fast since Mrs. Thatcher came to power. I don't know why. And when it can't raise it through taxes, it raises it through borrowing, or it invites Russians in to put their money into the country to maintain standards of living. Are we quite sure neoliberal is the right term for this massive increase of welfareism, free education, free health, and holiday homes for Russia and Cyprus? Okay. Let's take a third question from a student, maybe? Yes, you're a student. You look like a student. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm a student of sociology. I'm from China, so I, I think I'm going to... Ha- um, perhaps offer a perspective from the outside because I feel that the talk today has been very much focusing on Europe from inside as, it, as if the Europe, European Union is uh, an isolated entity from the world, but I think it's no longer true today. Just a few examples um, when the British PM signaled that uh, there is going to be a referendum on the EU membership um, there is intervention from, from the White House and w- and the recent example, the Cyprus uh, tax on the deposits, the, the Russia seems to be ready to step in. And also, when you were, uh, Professor Beck, when you were criticizing the, the uh, self-image of the uh, rationality, economic rationality of the Germans, actually, um, from a Chinese perspective, if there is the one lesson we learn from the Euro crisis, that is that um, although we we are always being criticized for keeping our um, um, export uh, surplus so high, and we found that uh, actually, although it's to be criticized, it's better to stay like this rather than like Greece. I mean, so we found that still Germany is something to, is a, is a good model to emulate. So I think so. these events are no longer just isolated from the global scene. So I don't think any solution on, of European Union can be decided by European Union alone. So there are four uh, issues to which people are asked to respond. The first, that there is no real cooperative mechanism uh, uh, in Europe um, that that works well, particularly on the economic level. The second, which is not so flippant, is don't we need an enemy in order to have solidarity, good sociological precept, Um, Is it true? Uh, The third is an observation about the fact that the expansion of the state has not been a project of neoliberalism or indeed even of the left, but has been something that um, has uh, happened under conservative uh, uh, regimes since the 80s, but that its expansion has been fueled uh, by debt, by, by indebtedness. And the last uh, question or observation is that from an extra European perspective, that uh, German Europe looks like a good mo- may look like a good model. <laughs> so those are four <coughs> issues for the two of you to sort of start. Well, maybe I start with the last one. Um, first of all, I think you are, you are right. It's, um, Europe, Europe is always thinking about Europe in a European perspective. Uh, we are always, you know, we, we love to 
talk about European identities, uh, and we are always looking at, at ourselves from inside. And it's very important to um, switch the perspective and look at Europe with the eyes of others. But I have, a, I have a different experience. I come back to your question. I have, I've, I've been invited, I think it was two years ago, by the French um, 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 president and other in intellectuals uh, from all over the world. We were just about 12 or 15. And the French uh, president and his foreign minister made the normal introductory speech. Everything is going wrong in Europe. We don't have any perspective. It's... Uh, it doesn't work, no coordination, nothing. And then one after the other from, from uh, intellectuals, from uh, America, from South America, even from Russia, from China, said, what are the Europeans quarreling about? Uh, Europe is actually the one interesting model which we have in the world. It's not uh, the American way of life anymore because this failed. Chinese do have a, uh, well, do have an interesting economic perspective, but they don't actually have a model to to realize. So actually, you have a model, you have an interest. Of course, there are lots of mistakes, but please be self-confident about this model because actually the world needs Europe, and I think this is quite important. Uh, I would, uh, from 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 the outside, if you if you look. Um, uh, at uh, Europe from China and from American point of view. I think they, they say, well, finally Germany took the lead and, and this is a good, uh, a good situation. But uh, like maybe your question, I, th I think there is a misunderstanding about Europe. Europe is not a nation state. Europe is not a nation. Europe is all these knots, no knots which in, in, in relation to our basic concepts. This is actually the main misunderstanding of economics, too. They don't have a model for Europe. They think it's either a nation state or, uh, I don't know what, an international, but it's, it is something very specific. It's an organizational structure by law between Europeanized nations. And this is something new. It's maybe the most important invention uh, in politics since the Westphalian invention of the nation state. And they don't understand, we, I think the outside, often the inside either, doesn't understand what the newness of the new uh, of Europe is about. And it's a more complicated situation. We cannot have a German Europe because it contradicts, actually it would be a, a national Europe, uh, an imperialistic Europe, which contradicts actually the main idea of the, of the new political space which Europe stands for. Yeah, a couple of points. I mean, one is on Europe as a model, and I actually think the world needs this model. Yeah. That's what I think. And I think, it, like Ulrich, I don't agree that it was a model that developed uh, in response to Soviet totalitarianism. Maybe NATO provided a security umbrella, I don't know. But it was, if you like, the logic of risk rather than the logic of war. And it's nation states that developed through enemies, this new kind of model developed as a way of coping with risk, to use Ulrich's language. But what I think is you need, the nation, you need something like Europe 
to push for a stronger United Nations in crises, to push for climate change, all kinds of things for human rights. You need an actor on the global stage to change the way the world is moving. And, you know, if there wasn't Europe, we'd have to invent something. And actually, perhaps the most important reason uh, for a stronger European Union is what it means for the world in general. The other thing is uh, Dennis's question about... Um, neoliberalism. I mean, of course, it's true that the welfare state grew, but within this framework of a neoliberal monetary union stuck by convergence criteria, which allowed for huge inequalities and no mechanism for overcoming those, or very, very weak mechanism for overcoming those inequalities. So when I say neoliberalism, I mean convergence criteria, I mean austerity, and all of those issues. And actually, yes, welfare's been at a state level, and yes, state spending's a very large share of national spending, but what we need is a new sense of what is public, to use Richard's phrases. Mm. You know, we need public, more public authority, not all focused on the level of the state, but at a European level and a local level as well. Right. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop because also it will allow you to look at Ulrich's book which just happens to be on sale and he might even just sign it were you to buy it. Uh It's <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much to both of you, and thank you all. <laughs>